Well, hello, saints, sinners, and all those in between. Welcome back to another episode of Chronicles Unleashed, where people detour from the road to redemption and struggle to find their way back. As you'll discover, the characters in our fictional stories, as well as the people in the real-life sagas, long for the same things, understanding, forgiveness, and mercy. You may even recognize pieces of your own life. Every week, Chronicles Unleashed will bring you tales of love, life, and human error. You'll be relieved to know that your own mistakes aren't as bad as you think. And even if they are, someone has done it before and been forgiven. Welcome to the Chronicles Unleashed Election Day Edition. As one of the most important elections of our time approaches, this episode is a reminder that our nation has a history of having to make tough decisions at the polls and dealing with the consequences. As we try to redeem the soul of our nation, let's take a look at some of the past choices in leadership. This president limited the power of banks, negotiated an important trade agreement with Great Britain, and spoke out on behalf of the common man. He was also an unapologetic, lying racist who ignored agreements and championed only the causes of the common people who look like him. Now, before you break your leg jumping to the wrong conclusion, we're talking about POTUS number seven, Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson's political life was as colorful as the man himself. Between the ages of 12 and 13, Andrew Jackson became a courier in the Revolutionary War when we were fighting the British for our independence. Eventually, he was captured and became a prisoner of war. During this time, Jackson was forced to be a servant to a very powerful British general. The general demanded that he spit shine his boots. And when Jackson cussed him out and refused, the general slashed his face with a sword, leaving him with lifelong scars. To date, he is the only president to have been a prisoner of war. And while most people find this admirable, in some circles, he would be considered a sucker and a loser. However, as part of a prisoner exchange program, he was eventually freed and served in the rest of the war. Unfortunately, when Jackson returned home to South Carolina, he found that his entire family had died, so he moved to Tennessee. It was there he briefly served as a congressman before returning to the Army. I won't bore you with the details of his military scorecard, but to say that he was ruthless would be like saying COVID-19 is a minor inconvenience. At one point, he was fighting the British Army and was outnumbered two to one. But Jackson's army had something the British didn't have, diversity. Jackson's group included not only military personnel, he enlisted free blacks, Native Americans, and pirates. When it was over, the British gave up and suffering over 2,000 casualties. Jackson had only 71. Though Native Americans were in part the reason for his success, after he got what he wanted from them, he kicked them to the curb 
and broke the treaties made with them. He uprooted thousands of Native Americans from their homes and killed others. What is even more outrageous is that this record actually helped his presidential campaign. There was one familiar stumbling block to his campaign, though. His opponents attacked his family values. They publicized the fact that Jackson's wife, Rachel, was at one time a bigamist. Actually, Rachel had left her husband, Louis Robards, an abusive and cruel adulterer. Robards sought a divorce. Thinking that it had become final, Rachel married Jackson. In fact, Robards never finalized the divorce. When he learned that Rachel remarried, he slut-shamed her by announcing that her second marriage was invalid. Technically, that did make her an adulterer and a bigamist, and Rachel became the subject of nasty gossip. When the divorce was completed, Rachel and Jackson remarried to correct the situation. Then over 20 years later, when Jackson was running for president, his opponents used that old news to embarrass him and damage his campaign. Rachel was again unfairly bombarded with vicious assaults to her reputation. This angered Jackson so much he wanted to fight, or in contemporary terms, he wanted to bust a cap in their asses. In the 17 and 1800s, people did that by challenging each other to duels. They would stand back to back, walk 10 paces away from each other, and then turn around and shoot at their opponent. In one memorable duel, before his presidency, Jackson shot a famous attorney and gunslinger, Charles Dickinson. Although Dickinson shot him first, Jackson was drunk and angry and managed to fatally shoot Dickinson in return. During his lifetime, Jackson engaged in over 100 duels. Some occurred when he was president, and most of them involved defending his wife's honor, even after she was dead. It was a miracle that Jackson was alive to even run for president. In addition to injuries sustained in duels and the bullet lodged in his lungs, by the time Jackson became a candidate, he had already gotten smallpox, malaria, dysentery, rheumatism, and a host of other diseases. At any rate, despite his opponent's smear campaign, Jackson won two terms as president. Sadly, Rachel died after Jackson won the first election, and she never even got to live in the White House. He was devastated. This might account in part for some of Jackson's rather odd behavior as president. While in office, Jackson worked, drank, gambled, played cards, and hosted out-of-control house parties. Following his inauguration, Jackson returned to the White House to a party hardy. Anyone and everyone was invited. The guests drank, destroyed furniture, and ground cheese into the carpet. It got so wild that Jackson had to escape from his own festivities through a side window. The drunken mob finally left the White House when someone had the presence of mind to move all the whiskey out to the front lawn. Though Jackson was popular with some voters, he narrowly escaped being assassinated. The would-be assassin tried to shoot him and the gun misfired. He took out a second gun and attempted to shoot Jackson again, but that one misfired too. Now, anybody else would have run, 
but not 67-year-old Andrew Jackson. He took the second gun from his assailant and beat him mercilessly with his cane until members of Congress could pull him off the man. Before Jackson left the White House, he hosted an interesting going-away party. The main course was cheese. A few years earlier, a dairy farmer sent the president a 1,400-pound wheel of cheese. After receiving the cheese and not knowing what to do with it, he let it sit in the foyer of the White House for anyone who wanted it. Years later, most of the cheese was still there. So during the party, Jackson simply passed out spoons and offered it to his guests. Over 10,000 people attended, and within two hours, the cheese was eaten. But not easily forgotten. You could smell that horrible odor of cheese blocks away. Even in death, Andrew Jackson remained controversial. Legend has it that at his funeral, his pet parrot had to be removed from the room because it refused to stop cussing. Clearly, Andrew Jackson was quite a character. As a great admirer of POTUS number no. 7, President Trump had Jackson's picture moved to the Oval Office. That said, if Jackson were alive today, do you think he would have supported gun control? Do you think he might have supported the Stand Your Ground law in Florida? Do you think he would have survived COVID-19? Do you think he might have followed science and observed the FDA guidelines on food preparation and expiration dates? Weigh in on the Chronicles Unleashed Facebook page, on Instagram, or Twitter at Chronicles, capital U-N-L-E, 1. Our next political leader is remembered for his fight against corruption and for his self-reliance and integrity. He was known to stand in his truth, even when it cost him the presidency. Grover Cleveland served as POTUS 22 and POTUS 24. He was the only president to leave the White House and return for a second term four years later. But as with most of us, his journey has a backstory. Grover Cleveland was born on March 18, 1837 in New Jersey. He was a PK, a preacher's kid, grew up in upstate New York, and when his father died in 1853, he went to work to support his mother and the rest of the family. To continue to care for his mother, Grover paid a Polish immigrant to serve in the military in his place. While he got a job as a law clerk and became an attorney, his real passion was politics. Cleveland was first elected as sheriff of Buffalo. While in that position, he performed the execution of a man who was convicted of killing his own mother. Back in the day, if a person was found guilty of first-degree murder, they were supposed to be hanged by the sheriff of that county. Usually, the job was passed off to the deputy, but to spare the deputy who was teased about his job, Cleveland performed the execution himself. Afterwards, he was reported to have been sick for several days. Later, relying on a platform of clean, non-wasteful government, he was elected to be mayor of Buffalo and then the governor of New York. By 1884, he was the Democratic nominee for president. Here's where it gets really interesting. The 1884 presidential campaign was epic 
and ugly. Cleveland's Republican opponent, U.S. Senator James G. Blaine of Maine, was the center of several financial scandals, while Cleveland, who was single at the time, was accused of fathering an illegitimate child with Maria Halpin. Cleveland admitted it was possible, but said that it was also possible his law partner Oscar Folsom might have been the father. Cleveland's honesty, if you believed him, took the sting out of the story. Now, Maria Halpin's story was a little different. She alleged that she had no relationship with anyone else and that Cleveland had date-raped her and then impregnated her. According to her, his aides sent her to an asylum and put the baby in an orphanage. Cleveland's camp admitted she briefly stayed in asylum and that her son was placed in an orphanage, but that she had taken money and agreed to that deal. Now, the other candidate, Senator James Blaine, was accused of financial improprieties. The Democrats in the House of Representatives called for a congressional investigation. Though Blaine denied all rumors, a witness was in possession of letters that would prove otherwise. All the letters ended with this sentence, burn this letter, please. According to the witness, the day before he was to testify, Blaine approached him, snatched the letters from his hand, and left. Blaine refused to release the letters to the committee. Given the choice between a corrupt candidate and what the public saw as a bachelor candidate simply getting his freak on, they decided to support the latter. Grover won by a slim margin of 1,200 votes. At the risk of sounding preachy, I will just say, all votes matter. The other backstory also has to do with Cleveland's law partner and friend, Oscar Folsom. When the fun-loving attorney Folsom died unexpectedly in a carriage accident, Cleveland assumed responsibility for his wife, Mrs. Folsom, and became the legal guardian of his 11-year-old daughter, Frances, whom he had known since she was born. Cleveland bought her her first carriage. He was like an uncle to her. Many people in their circle thought that Cleveland would marry Folsom's widow. Instead, 10 years later, after she completed college and with her mother's blessing, Cleveland married 21-year-old Francis during his first term. Cleveland was the only president to marry in the White House. The marriage was apparently successful and yielded five children. Francis went on to become a popular and accomplished first lady. Cleveland lost his second bid for president, due in part because of the heavy turnout of voters in the industrial states in the Northeast, who felt that some of his policies threatened their jobs. So he and his family returned to New York City, and he took a position in a law firm for the next four years. Unlike the campaign of 1884, the presidential campaign of 1892 was relatively tame. The then-president Harrison's wife, Caroline Harrison, was dying of tuberculosis, so he didn't campaign personally, and Cleveland followed suit. Cleveland won the election because by then, voters had changed their minds about his policies. Cleveland's second term, however, was a classic case of be careful what you wish for. The stock market crashed. There were bank and railroad failures, and unemployment rose to 19%. In addition to that, Cleveland faced a medical scare that threatened to rock his presidency. 
he discovered a lesion in his mouth that the doctors diagnosed as cancer. So as not to panic the American people and the financial markets any further, Cleveland kept his health a secret. In June of 1883, while he was on a friend's yacht, doctors removed the lesion. Then another operation was performed in mid-July, after which Cleveland returned to his summer house to recuperate. For the rest of his life, he wore an artificial jaw on the left upper side. Amazingly, his appearance and his speech stayed the same. His medical situation remained a secret until one of his doctors published an article about it in 1917, almost 10 years after Cleveland's death. While Cleveland was perceived to be honest, his views on race were not progressive. He opposed discrimination against the Chinese, but did not support equality for African Americans or voting rights for women, and he thought Native Americans should assimilate into the mainstream of society as quickly as possible rather than to preserve their culture. He also became unpopular with organized labor when he used federal troops to crush the Pullman Railroad strike in 1894. He fought against unnecessary government spending as well. After his second term, Cleveland retired to Princeton, New Jersey, where he and Francis lived until Grover's death in 1908 at age 71. Francis remarried five years later, becoming the first presidential widow to do so. Yet she did choose to be buried by Cleveland in Princeton. In context, Grover Cleveland was a man of his time. But if he were living today, do you think he would have been outed by the Me Too movement? Do you think he would have used the HIPAA laws to avoid sharing his health issues? Do you think he would have supported capital punishment? Do you think he might have been convicted of child molestation? Weigh in on Chronicles Unleashed on our Facebook page, Instagram, or Twitter at Chronicles, capital U-N-L-E, 1. Our next presidential spotlight falls upon a man who favored pro-business policies and limited immigration. He also appointed four conservative Supreme Court justices. And though he was generally disorganized and lacked ambition, he married an aggressive feminist. Enter POTUS number 29, Warren G. Harding. Warren G. Harding was born on November 2, 1865 in Ohio to George Harding, a doctor and part owner of a newspaper, and Phoebe Dickinson Harding, a midwife. He was the oldest of their eight children. Harding graduated from college in 1882 and moved to Marion, Ohio, and became a newspaper reporter. In 1884, he and several partners purchased a small, struggling newspaper. In 1891, Harding married Florence Kling, who had a son from a previous relationship, insisted upon using her maiden name as well as her married name, and refused to wear a wedding ring. Florence also helped manage the business operations for her husband's newspaper, and it became a financial success but Florence had higher aspirations. Even though she knew Warren was lazy, a drinker, and not particularly bright, she propped him up and pushed him into politics. His easygoing personality, 
good looks, and commanding speaking voice took him far in Ohio politics. He served as the state senate, as lieutenant governor, and while he unsuccessfully ran for governor, he delivered the nominating address for President Taft at the 1912 Republican Convention and gained national recognition within the party. He was so well received that it paved the way for his 1914 election to the Senate. He stayed in the Senate until he was nominated as the presidential candidate. It was the first presidential election where women could vote and Florence took to the campaign trail and encouraged women to be politically active. Once in the White House, Florence opened up the mansion and the grounds to the public, and though she suffered from a chronic kidney ailment, she was an active first lady. She scheduled garden parties, Easter egg rolls, and entertained guests with after-dinner movies. Florence and Warren also liked to relax at poker parties in the White House library, where liquor was available even though at that time the 18th Amendment made it illegal. It would kind of be the same as smoking weed or snorting coke in the White House. Florence played a significant role in her husband's administration. She was instrumental in appointing certain high-level cabinet members and made the final decisions on his speeches. Florence regularly attended cabinet meetings and urged her husband to appoint women to positions in the administration. There were, however, some instances where Florence had no influence over Warren's activities. He had at least two mistresses, Carrie Fulton Phillips and Nan Britton. Warren wrote smutty lust letters to Phillips, which she kept and used as blackmail receiving more than $297,000 in today's money from the Republican National Committee. The Library of Congress eventually released these steamy letters for those of you who want to fact check. The other mistress, Nan Britton, was about 30 years younger than Warren and much more naive. She was in love with Warren and had a daughter by him. Though he was paying child support to her, when he died, the payment stopped. So she wrote a book to support herself and her child. The book detailed that they had sex on Harding's Senate couch. And after he became president, they had sex in a closet in the White House. A Secret Service agent would stand nearby and knock on the door if Florence was approaching. Only then would they come out of the closet, so to speak. Some might say that these scandals had nothing to do with his governance of the country. And while this may be true, some political historians felt that there were other reasons why Harding should have never been president. Though Warren Harding may now face stiff competition, in almost every poll of presidential performance before 2020, he was rated at the bottom because of the corruption in his cabinet and his lack of vision. Up until 2017, historians found Harding's administration to be the most corrupt in the nation's history. Harding's Secretary of the Interior, Albert Fall, was convicted of taking kickbacks. Attorney General Doherty advised Harding that Charles Forbes, who was the director of Veterans Bureau, illegally sold government medical supplies to private contractors. Now, Harding berated Forbes, but allowed him to leave the country to escape prosecution. Shortly after that, Charles Cranmer, 
general counsel to the Veterans Bureau, committed suicide. Ten weeks later, Jesse Smith, the attorney general's private secretary, also committed suicide. But it was a day after he had had a long conversation with Harding in the White House. Rumors had been circulating that Smith and a group known as the Ohio Gang had been profiting from a variety of corrupt activities. The attorney general himself went on trial twice, the first resulting in a hung jury and the second in a not guilty verdict. Though Harding was never implicated in any corruption, he was aware of what his friends were doing and he did little to stop it. Harding famously complained, I have no trouble with my enemies. I can take care of my enemies in a fight, but my friends, my goddamn friends, they're the ones who keep me walking the floor at nights. To be fair, Harding did establish a budget system for the federal government, and under the leadership of Secretary of State Hughes, he succeeded in getting the world's major powers to agree to halt the arms race. Harding was also the first sitting president to mention civil rights in the South. In 1921, he went to Alabama and advocated voting rights and political equality for blacks, as well as an end to prejudice. He had his vices, but at a time of severe racial intolerance, he courageously spoke out in support of the African-American community. On August 2, 1923, Harding died suddenly from natural causes before the end of his term. When Florence refused to allow an autopsy, the rumors were that she poisoned him. There is no evidence to support this. In fact, Florence remained loyal to him even after his death and burned many documents and letters that she thought might tarnish his legacy. She worked tirelessly to establish his memorial foundation until her death a little over a year later. Harding may have looked presidential, but he proved the old adage that you can't judge a book by its cover. If he were living today, do you think he would have supported Black Lives Matter? Or do you think he would have been sued for sexual harassment? Do you think he would have approved of legalization of pot? Weigh in on the Chronicles Unleashed Facebook page, on Instagram, or on Twitter at Chronicles, capital U-N-L-E, 1. Our last look at the presidential landscape highlights a man who excelled at maintaining the status quo. In fact, it was said that his political genius was his talent for effectively doing nothing and saying less. He was also the only president to be sworn into office by his father and the first president whose speeches were heard over the radio. He was President Harding's vice president and successor, POTUS number 30, Calvin Coolidge. On July 4, 1872, in a small village of Plymouth Notch, Vermont, Calvin Coolidge was born to John Calvin Coolidge, a hardworking businessman, and his mother, Victoria Josephine Moore Coolidge, who died when he was just 12 years old. He graduated from Amherst College in Massachusetts, later passed the bar, and became an attorney. 
He began his political career in 1898 when he was elected to the Northampton, Massachusetts City Council. He served in various positions, including mayor, state congressman, state senator, and lieutenant governor. He developed a reputation as a pro-business conservative who strove to make government lean and efficient. But it was his handling of a police strike when he was governor that gained him national recognition. When the Boston police force went on strike and riots broke out across the city, he sent in the state guard to restore order and refused to rehire the striking police officers. In a famous telegram to labor leader Samuel Gompers, he declared, there is no right to strike against the public safety by anybody, anywhere, anytime. Later, he was chosen to be the vice presidential candidate on the ticket headed by U.S. Senator Warren G. Harding of Ohio. When Warren Harding died unexpectedly, Coolidge, nicknamed Silent Cal because of his quiet nature, was left to pick up the pieces. Raised to be honest, hardworking, and conservative, Coolidge had a no-nonsense approach to governing. Unlike Harding, who had an easygoing personality and casual leadership style. It must have been a real culture shock for Harding's friends when Coolidge appointed a special counsel to investigate the bribery scandal. He also fired Harding's not guilty but not innocent U.S. Attorney General Harry M. Dougherty. Coolidge's actions and reputation helped him to restore the public trust in government. He was rewarded in the next election with the presidency of his own in 1924. Though the two biggest domestic issues included prohibition, the illegal drinking of alcohol, which was the law of the land at the time, and the Ku Klux Klan, a terrorist organization that attacked people of color and Jews, he did nothing and said nothing about either problem. Instead, he cut taxes, limited government spending, and instituted a high tariff on foreign goods to protect American businesses. He also opted out of the League of Nations. His vision was to go along to get along and to keep the country calm. While Coolidge tried to limit spending, the American people who were enjoying the Roaring Twenties did the opposite. During this era, people lived out loud. They spent extravagantly, drank, smoked, danced. Women wore shorter skirts and makeup. They bobbed their hair and voted. More people owned automobiles and purchased mass-produced goods such as canned foods. Meanwhile, Silent Cal remained quiet and distant. He was known to be the most negative and remote of the presidents, and yet he was the most accessible. He would grant an interview and say nothing. This is ironic, given that fact that he virtually invented the press conference. In fact, Coolidge held 520 press conferences during his five and a half years in office. He cultivated a pleasant relationship with the press with his dry wit and wry humor. Coolidge once explained to Bernard Baruch why he often sat silently through interviews. Well, Baruch, many times I only say yes or no to people, even that's too much. It winds them up for 20 minutes or more. Once a woman approached him during a dinner party and said, I made a bet 
I could get more than two words out of you. Coolidge responded, you lose. Coolidge decided not to run in 1928 after his father and son died. He famously declined nomination for a second elected term by calling a press conference but taking no questions from reporters. He simply handed out strips of paper to those who were present that read, in classic Coolidge style, I do not choose to run for president in 1928. Coolidge retired, and less than a year after he left office, the U.S. stock market crashed and America plunged into the Great Depression. Although Coolidge had received a great deal of credit for the prosperity of the 1920s, even he recognized that he bore some responsibility for the Depression. He admitted to friends that he spent his presidency avoiding the big problems. You think? At least Coolidge took responsibility for his inaction. A refreshing approach that we haven't seen in almost, let me see, four years. At any rate, if Silent Cow were alive today, choose which two people you think would do the best job of interviewing him. Listen to the list. Anderson Cooper, Wolf Blitzer, Sean Hannity, Don Lemon, Rachel Maddow, Andrea Mitchell, Oprah, or Joy Reid. Weigh in on the Chronicles Unleashed Facebook page, on Instagram or Twitter at Chronicles UNLE1. That's Chronicles, capital UNLE1. That concludes our Election Day edition episode. Clearly, these POTUSes had their flaws and quirks. Andrew Jackson was a lying, cussing, gambling drinker who threw wild house parties. Grover Cleveland was a racist who was accused of being a rapist and who hid his health problems from the country. Warren Harding was a disorganized, lazy drinker who loved to play cards and chase women. Silent Cal Coolidge did nothing new and refined the art of moving his lips without saying anything. Remarkably, they still made some contribution to our country. But what is more important is that the majority of our leaders, while not perfect, governed far more effectively and tried to improve our lives. America has survived because people like you and me keep advocating for our own rights. Then we vote and pray for the best. Now take out a dollar bill, look at the back, and read along with me. In God we trust. See you at the polls! Invite your friends and family to come join us and become Unleashed. We only get paid when we get played, so hit us up every week. Special thanks to Mixkit and Michael Ramirez C. for the Chronicles Unleashed theme song, Scripted Life. This is Donna Edwards signing off, reminding you that every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. There is hope for us all. <laughs>